Third One Percent is by Basietum, produced by Ken Rich at Grand Street Recording in Brooklyn. The song Fallen is by Sleep Station and performed by Catherine Allison, featuring scene music from John Swan and Emily Wolfe as Marsha. Chapter 9. Simon's hands were coated in a sticky, pinkish paste that mesmerized him. It was slick between his fingers and the base of his thumb. He pulled his hand apart to watch it extend and hang loose for just a moment before it snapped back into a gelatin puddle on his palm. This was Elba, under his fingernails and dripping down his slacks. This was Elba rolling inside his shirt sleeve and resting at his elbow. This was Elba who inhabited every bit of his thoughts, the one he cared for, the one who told Karen that she wanted to be with him, the one who asked for a dance before her body failed. The Elba on the table was just a product of quantum computing, machine learning, heuristics, and his brazen genius. He needed to make a decision about her fate. Simon would cultivate it in the feeling of the elbow between his fingers. So as far as he could tell, there were three options. One, remove the cylinder from Elba and lose her personality, her essence, what you might call her soul, if she were capable of possessing such a thing, but keep her body and the painstakingly designed and constructed connections between each part intact. Two. Assume he made an error calculating the rate of accretion within the logic membrane cylinder, refill Elba's gel packs, and wait for her to recover. If he were wrong, though, her entire being would be unrecoverable. Three, restart the cylinder while it was within her, permanently disable Elba's body, and trigger a power surge that would destroy her neural network but preserve whatever pieces of her consciousness had made it into the logic membrane. These were the best-case scenarios, and none would be easy, especially because Simon insisted on working alone. A spare thought piercing his reverie. Was he alone because he wanted to keep Elba to himself? Might she die because of his selfishness? The obvious retort, that she would never have existed if not for him, and the peculiar way he was, never occurred to him. It's not that, Marsha. I finally replied when she left my side. I'm I'm not nervous about this. I just remembered something from when I was younger, you know? I was in my own little world. So what happened in that memory? You kind of freaked me out for a minute there. It's like you were in a trance. <sighs> well, I was at this party in high school once and well, I was never at those parties. It was disorienting, the feeling of my real past flooding back into my memory. I slept with Danny Tavares after our class trip, and once I talked Victor's cousin into pouring me some of his uncle's scotch at a New Hampshire pool house. Marsha was staring a hole through me, and I kept talking. Just some pretty funny things that happened. I think you would have to have been there. I didn't let her cut in. When are we supposed to be at the lab for Simon's review today? He isn't answering my calls, but you know how he gets. She said, returning to some paper shuffling task. 
You know, I thought he was a lot resentful and a little bit scared when he first met you. But you've done well. I think the incomparable Mr. Zoller just might trust you now. So, how'd you do it? Um, I felt myself blush thinking of the whiskey I poured into Simon's coffee cup. I have in the past taken for granted that they can't see me turn red, but I think Marcia could always tell. Sometimes you just got to reach out to people, you know? Show them you're listening. I'll try that sometime, she said into an open drawer. I see that look. You couldn't have had any idea. I couldn't have noticed that something was inside my best friend's head, just like splitting her in two. You really think I couldn't have known anything at all? You don't have to patronize me. Why must it all fall on me? When did my colleagues become so hopelessly pathetic? They construct a shell around themselves and say that it is science, a method. And what is it but protection from their truth? And if all of our truths make up this world, what is it but protection from reality? Through the rules and the regulations that define rules and the codes that protect the rules and the schooling that determines our access and the access that is measured by our success and the success that wins our process induction into the scientific method and the method that is simplified for children and the children who enter the world and the children who encounter reality and the children who seek a shell the children who measure their brief encounter with reality and thank the method for the shell and the children who enter the schools <laughs> they are hardly scientists my colleagues are trapped in the method. But there are others who live outside of its shell. They give their commands to agents. They convince agents to follow a method. They write it in a book. They encode it with a pat on the back and a title. Their orders are the shell. If the agents let alone common people, had unfettered science and no method, the result of orders would be unpredictable if science happens to escape. And, and people get the idea that it comes from somewhere other than people who give commands. A new method will be spun of whole cloth. A method can always be made. State the problem. The United States government needs confidential flight. Collect information. People cannot be confidential for generations. They can't be trusted. Killing those who must be confidential is an unacceptable risk 
and many argue that it is a moral hazard. Form a hypothesis. We do not need people, we only need flight. Humans are capable of reproduction. Experiment. Perhaps now, outside of the shell, a human will reproduce. Results. A man who lives outside of our shell created a machine capable of intelligent flight. It is something like a human woman. Conclusion. The United States government has acquired confidential flight. If the people who would come to this conclusion by way of my work have a method, it little resembles that of the scientific community or the agents who hold my orders. How about my method? State the problem. I feel that within myself something is growing. It gestated when I was given this assignment. I entered labor the moment I met Karen. Collect information. I love her as if she were organic. Experiment. Sometimes I feel silence is the best thing you can hear. Results. Silence was loaded against her existence. The vacuum she inhabited was not big enough for her soul. I am bleeding for her. And still, there is no room left. Conclusion. My attempt to install Elba's logic membrane has failed, and she is dying. Essential pieces of her consciousness have leaked out into the silence. They have probably been leaking since she first woke. I feel that, within myself, something is growing. Sweat leaked through the pores of his brown polo shirt. A sugary pink paste smeared across his arms on fingerprints adorning his cheek. Thick black grease painted across his hip in circles at the shins of his slacks. Electricity burns so each touch hurts and he makes the same decision again and again. Touch. Elba was warm and would soon be hot. Simon gripped a small lever on her shoulder and checked his wristwatch every few minutes. To save whatever was left of Elba's consciousness, he would need to restart the new logic membrane and pull it out of her head before her overheating body burned through the membrane's casing. But Elba's temperature was rising faster than he predicted. Still three minutes, and she might start burning his skin in half the time. In one jerky motion, he jumped off the table beside Elba and peered through the middle of the headrest, where Elba's open skull lay exposed. He watched the membrane spin inside of her head, a spiral of blue and orange expressing a steamy hum. I walked into the room. The first thing I noticed was a clean press suit 
hanging from what looked like an ivy rack. Shoes buffed to a reflective black were underneath each leg with a sock stuffed inside. As the door opened wider, we had been ringing the bell and knocking for quite a while. Simon came into view, shivering behind the exposed body of a naked machine, more sweat than shirt, eyes bloodshot red with tears, thick mucus embedded at the entrance of his nose. Marcia said, Oh my God! Like she was asking her eyes to stop lying to her. This was intelligent flight, a robot with breasts and hips. What is this? She added, blind to Simon's distress. Simon! Marcia took a few steps forward. I thought we agreed on everything. You said you would build us a flight machine. I read all of your reports. What is this? Marcia? I put my hand on her shoulder. I couldn't tell her that I'd already known. I think this is it. This is the flight machine. Karen. She put her hand on my shoulder. Her mouth was quivering like she was afraid of our little bureau coming to an end and of going home. That is a sex doll. Enough! Simon shouted at us. I was surprised he could be so loud. Please, damn it! We watched him in silence, absorbed in the whirring, hissing, breathing, sniffling. Marcia was getting past herself and seeing Simon, who, it had become clear, was breaking down. She saw the soldering, laid with an expert's steady hand, the smooth panel work on the legs and the side of the chest with its angular sculptor's curves, the wiring surrounding the belly button, taut and corkscrewing in precise loops, a manic scramble of diagnostic information behind the sparks in those rust-tinted eyes, the intense, desperate focus on Simon's face. His eyes would not leave the back of her head, and we stood transfixed for who knows how long, until he used his right hand to brace himself against Elba's shoulder, which hung slightly off the edge of the table. Then he screamed. It was a long, abiding scream that pried his jaws open. But still, they would not leave the back of her head. And his hand, shaking violently, remained on her shoulder. And the last syllable of his scream was something that sounded like, Yes! and he pulled a cylindrical blue canister out of Elba's head and fell back to the floor. Marcia saw bubbling skin flaking off of Simon's right hand and rushed to find a first aid kit. Simon seemed to be in shock until Marcia poured alcohol in his hand, then something exactly between laughing and crying was expelled from his entire body, with that cylinder gripped tight against his chest. Marcia had to pry a hand away from his curled-up body to wrap it in gauze. I didn't need to ask. I knew what happened. Elba was dead, but some tiny part of her might exist in that cylinder. Once she patched Simon up, Marcia stood over Elba's body, examining it, too sheepish to touch. I think she was searching for something to say. 
Simon sat on the bare floor with his knees between his arms and a thousand-mile stare. I crouched beside him. Once she patched Simon up, Marcia stood over Elba's body, examining it. Too sheepish to touch. I think she was searching for something to say. Simon sat on the bare floor with his knees between his arms and a thousand-mile stare. I crouched beside him. I am so sorry, Simon. I wish this would have worked out differently. He nodded, I think. I made a motion to Marcia, and we left for the car. She didn't ask me how much I knew or say anything at all, really. I'm not sure why, but I got into the driver's seat and she handed me the keys. I could feel an awful milieu descending upon us as the first disconnected strings of water struck the windshield of our federal issue sedan. I let it envelop us. Okay. So then Karen told me that she was writing an official order to shut down Simon's lab. And she told me to wish him well and to make sure he landed on his feet. All right. So you're in the car. Then what did you say? I didn't say anything. I was just thinking about how that poor girl died right in front of us. And we like just walked away. Hmm. Hard to know what to say at a moment like that. And then Karen asked me if I understood why she had to make that order. And I was still quiet. So then it was like she pulled the thoughts from inside my head and had the conversation herself. She said, this is our job. This is what we have to do. Yeah. I told her that I understand the job. And then I was quiet. Dwindling that has left you 
Part two. Hang in there, Charlie. I hear you're supposed to be pretty good. I am. Top of my class at the Air Force Academy. Squad leader for the 79th. Two distinguished flying crosses for... Yes? Sorry, sir. It just seems like you meant to ask me something else there. This kid could decipher human expressions, which put him ahead of everyone I'd interviewed so far. That's right, Charlie. I meant to ask whether you are good. I'm not sure what you mean. You don't know what it means to be good? No. I just don't know how to... He tilted his head slightly, expecting me to cut him off, but I just let him dangle. Well, he shifted in his chair. I love my mother. Meek smile. Self-conscious chuckle. He seems to have a soul. I have a wife, he continued. And she doesn't want me to leave. I mean, she, she didn't tell me that, but I can see it when I look at her, you know? She just pauses for a little too long. His eyes trailed off to the ceiling of my office in the Johnson Space Center. This kid is definitely a yank, still sweating from the mild summer morning heat. I don't want to leave her, man. I don't want to go. But the thing is, I've been around the Air Force my entire adult life. And I know there is nobody on this earth who can do this job as well as me. And I know that my country needs me to do my duty. And performing my duty, serving my country, is all I have dreamed of since I was a kid. So I, I am the happiest man in the world to be in this room with you, Colonel. You can call me Annie. But it still breaks my heart, man. Every time she looks at me until I can, like, she looks at me until I can see my reflection. It just breaks my fucking heart, Colonel Eddie. No, it's just, so the way I figure, well, I don't know if that makes me a good person, but I do. Charlie nodded at me deliberately, as if he were the one listening. I do understand why you ask, sir. For five months now, I'd been looking for evidence that any one of these recruits understood why it was so important that they were good. But mostly, I was met with shrugs and dismissive ones at that. I'm happy you understand, Charlie. You have no idea. Your, your peers are... In that way, I am no better than my fellow pilots. The Air Force Academy, Charlie, your peers. A nod of concession. 
understand, sir. I need to know, no matter how high the stakes are, that you will do the right thing. Yeah. You have killed a lot of people, Charlie. Uh, strafing runs through city centers, um, vehicles with unidentified passengers. There are children now who have never known their fathers and their mothers because of a button you pressed. I made my fist into a flight control stick and pressed my thumb down. Beep. He didn't react. So you love your mother, Charlie. No more than those kids loved theirs. Was it wrong? Colonel Eddie, I wish I felt that way. I really do. I feel like I'm not fit for God's protection. Every second that I walk this earth because of what I've done, because of what I do, but, but how much destruction, how much, how much death would have come to this world if in the future I didn't do the hard things that haunt me every night? What would it have been worth if those kids live with parents now, only so all of their kids die in a war. This kid was good, but I still wasn't sure whether he was good. But, well, it was a month past my staffing deadline, so he would have to be good enough. Chapter 1 I am not deciding that I need this space more than the ducks. This isn't about staying here until they decide to go. Then what is it about? I'm wearing giant rubber boots and there's a chunk of mud in Marsha's hair. Oh my god, this is when you took us on that weird duck hunting trip. <laughs> Seems like it. So... Why did you take us there? Is that something you do for everybody who works under you? Did some older man try to make a point to you about patience or something, and then you thought you could do it better? Or did this exact thing happen? Oh, oh my God. Was it your dad? Were you reliving your childhood through us because you didn't have any kids? Wait, wait a minute. Is Elbow One like your new- Why don't we just see if Karen has any theories about that? Hmm? Oh, come on. How are we possibly allowed to expense this? Marcia asked as she pretended she wasn't fussing with her coily locks, which were mostly tucked under a baseball cap. There was this little uncovered strip of skin around her wrist between my glove and my shirt sleeve that was becoming red and swollen with mosquito bites. Milton went on like an instructional video. I am not deciding anything at all. I am waiting. Just waiting and I trust that opportunity will find me, and I will be ready for the challenge. And when you shoot, I replied, you don't shoot where they're going to be, but where they should want to be, right? A laugh burst out of Marsha's mouth like a sneeze. You're funny, Karen. Milton tore his eyes away from the tall grass to give me a dismissive smirk. And you want me to think you aren't paying attention, but it's not working as well as you imagine. 
He turned back to the grass. I made a face. When the opportunity comes, I don't think. I just shoot because I know how to shoot a gun. Milton turned away from the grass and sat behind the bush where Martian and I were kneeling with binoculars hanging around our necks and crisp, unblemished duck hunting gear that made us look something like teenagers being dragged along by our father. Marcia, Karen, sometimes that opportunity never comes. Sometimes the ducks just walk away. Milton sighed and pulled the rifle across his lap. I didn't come here to get away from our work. I come here to build good habits. If you are really good at this job, you don't make very many decisions. You just wait and remember that you know how to shoot. Milton's beard was symmetrical, and he checked his watch. There must be, I thought, an important meeting later. You're saying that there's nothing we could have done. I asked Milton. In most of these scientific reviews, all you can do is provide support to the contractor and compose detailed reports. If it goes wrong before you start to test the product, sometimes there is no way you can affect that. We get it. Then why doesn't he give us an assignment that we can affect? I asked her. Milton snorted. How about you just concern yourself with the assignment you've been assigned to? Milton leaned further. The agency maintains a confidential space station. Not as swanky as the new ISS, its orbit is a little further out. So we had to skimp on a few of the creature comforts. You're sending us to outer space? Uh-huh. Milton offered a dumb little smile, but he was getting sick of me. He opened his camouflaged backpack and pushed two thick binders into our hands. We need to send supplies and retrieve data about experiments on the station. It will be harder than it sounds. Good luck. And hi, Marsha. It really is nice to see you here. As Milton stood and walked away, a pulsating mass of ducks flew from behind the tall grass. But he didn't bother to notice, leaving Marsha and I to watch him from behind our bush as their commotion faded into the cloudy distance. <laughs>